Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European, write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast, a British eye on European politics and European culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. That's people like me, Steve Anglesey. How are you? In a moment, I'm going to be joined by the author and commentator, Paul Mason, whose excellent new book, How to Stop Fascism, is out now. He's written about it in issue 257 of the New European. We've done 257 issues. That's amazing. Then we'll put more putrid politicians and pompous pundits into the Hall of Shame. The New European has got an excellent new website. Why not check it out at theneweuropean.co.uk? And you can enjoy more from us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And we've got an excellent new podcast you can listen to after this one. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's brilliant. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. So coming up, Paul Mason. But first, also coming up is a long weekend, and naturally it's raining and blowing a gale outside. You might be able to hear that during this podcast. But if the weather does cheer up, many of you might be thinking of a trip to a pub beer garden on the last bank holiday weekend of the summer. So what will you be having? Well, how about a cooling pint of nothing? Because as you might have heard, the much discussed shortage of lorry drivers is disrupting distribution at Brewers Heineken. It's causing shortages of everything from Foster's, Strongbow Dark Fruits, not so worried about that. The Dutch Lager itself, not really worried about that either. Beer and Moretti, quite worried about that. Pubs in both England and Scotland are reporting orders being delivered with 75% of the stock missing. It's brutal news for landlords as they gear up for the first bank holiday weekend this year where trading won't be hampered by COVID restrictions. In Scotland, there's a pub group warning that some businesses are going to go bankrupt this week and next week because of the distribution chaos. Bankrupt when they should be having their busiest weekend of the year. Now, look, there are several causes of the shortage of lorry drivers, but the brewing industry itself definitely sees Brexit as a major one. The British Beer and Pub Association said this, more government intervention is needed as a matter of urgency to address the driver shortage in the immediate term. And they think the solution are trying to tempt back some of the 20,000 or so EU drivers who used to live in Britain and then went back to live in Europe. They want to tempt them back into the UK. They say the government can do this by adding them to the post-Brexit skills shortage occupation list. But the Transport Minister, Grant Shapps, has made it plain he doesn't see foreign labour as even a short-term answer. He appears to be more concerned about the blowback from Brexiteers than the thought of British businesses going to the wall. It's extraordinary. And even if Grant Shapps relents, will it make any difference? Apart from the Europeans who've left the country altogether, of course, there were European drivers who always lived in Europe, but built a living on taking goods from the continent to Britain and then taking new loads back from here to there. And they're understandably wary about increased red tape because of Brexit and the risk of heading home with an empty truck as exporters give up on exporting like the Scots whisky industry, which the SNP claims is suffering £5 million a week in lost sales to the EU. It's enough to drive you to drink, if there were any drivers and any drink. 
Are there any shortages of food or booze or anything else near you as part of this supply line shambles? We asked listeners of this podcast what they'd noticed and what they blame. Richard Downer, that's a good name for Brexit. Uh, he says, I live in Poole. There's plenty of food in the shops at the moment, but there are gaps on the shelves. Stuart Nickel, he says in Tesco, in Aylesbury, Tesco are just filling out shelves with extra stock of other items. There's beer in the pasta section, for instance, and soft drinks like water are almost non-existent. Now, on water, I've got um, I've got Grace Chilies here. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, she says, I understand why there are shortages and why. What I can't understand is the panic over bottled water. The vast majority is provided by water coming out of a tap. It's true, it is. Scottish water is as good as anywhere in the world. Avocado shortages, yes, panic. Water, try turning on the tap. More shortages here. Or lack of shortages. Sue Stokes says, there are no shortages here in France. Steve Box says, no problems here in Poland or in Germany when I was there last month. Michelle Howell says, no shortages in Italy. On Twitter, the alt-centrist says, in my personal life, yes, there's a noticeable lack of certain products, milk, fruit and veg, water, soft drinks in my local supermarket. In my job, also, yes, we have difficulty getting certain chemicals now. The prices of others have gone up a lot. And Gary Spence says, yes, I tweeted Greg's yesterday about how they haven't had corned beef pasties in for a month now. This is a national moment of national crisis. Sam Matthews. Hi, Sam. He says 40,000 delayed HGV license tests due to COVID hasn't helped at all. So it's not solely due to Brexit, although your readers won't want to believe that. Well, I've been clear, Sam, on this podcast and things that I've written about this for the New European, that there's more than one cause of this lorry driving shortage. It's something we'll be expanding on in another piece in the next issue of the New European. Steve Barron, finally, says yes. There are shortages. And yes, Brexit is partly to blame, but at least our fish are happy. Now, the author and commentator, Paul Mason. Paul's many credits include Newsnight and Channel 4 News. He's the author of books including Post-Capitalism and now How to Stop Fascism. And he's written in the current edition of The New European. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. How are you? Brilliant, thank you. Just um, pushing the book out to all and sundry at the moment. Marvellous. We are part of the sundry, or, all, or think, maybe part of the all. Who knows? I hope you're part of the all. <laughs> um, it's very chilling, isn't it, that um, 76 years after the end of World War II, there's, there's a book called How to Stop Fascism. What, what, what are the triggers that, 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 made you, uh, that made you write this book and give it that title? Well, as a young person, I was, I was an anti-fascist. I was in the anti-Nazi league and mobilised to stop the BMP and the NF from, you know, attacking basically migrant areas and black areas and Asian areas. This is, that, that's what fascism used to look like. And one of the only virtues of being 61 is that the other end of the, an adult life, to be able to see something completely different and understand that it's a, a much bigger threat. Um, so, I mean, what at the start of the book, I, I've just given six examples, case studies of what modern global fascism does, the way it mobilizes, uses symbolic violence, uses networked communications to try and win an argument, uh, or rather not a rational argument, more like sort of trigger a mass psychological conversion amongst people who are dislocated, confused, etc. And, you know, every time I do a public appearance about this book, which I've been doing them for about a month to to anticipate it coming out. I just have to go online and Google, and I get equally good case studies. Uh, the ones I've written 
about in the uh, in the in the New European this week. You're around about you know po Polish far right goes into uh, children's hostel, you know orphanage, um, to 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 tell the staff to stop vaccinating children, and then pr promises basically to take care of them uh, if they don't stop. And you know since I've written the article, um, there's just another amazing and and stunning case study arisen in the United States over the Taliban. Large parts of the far right ecosystem and, and inf information infrastructure are now cheering the Taliban victory. You, you know, anybody who thinks, for example, that fascism is just like a, a form of ultra-nationalism or militarism, well, here are Americans, and there's not a few of them, it's a, it's a, it's a dominant meme on the American right this week, here are Americans cheering the defeat of their own country and the defeat of their own army because they love what the Taliban stand for and they want to see what they call the gay state or the Zionist occupied government fall. And, and, and many of them are not just cheering and saying, well, well done to them. They're saying the Taliban taking a radicalized bunch of young people dislocated from the mainstream, training them. Uh, and indoctrinating them and then starting in the countryside and working to the cities and then seizing power in a lightning flash, well, that's a great model for us. I mean, I've been monitoring this in real time on the American, you know, the far right, on the on the chat channels and on the telegram channels. It, it's a stunning kind of, it's a stunning vindication, I would argue, that the book is relevant, uh, that we are going to see far right politics as a threat even as we try and do our own thing, climate change, on COVID-19, on Black Lives Matter, far-right politics are standing there to obstruct us. And, I mean, you mentioned there that the vaccine thing, the piece that you have written for us this week begins with far-right groups and the, these elements of vaccine scepticism. Do, do those things go hand in hand? I mean, everyone who's, a, who's a, an anti-vaxxer is, I'm, I'm guessing that, I'm guessing that Jeremy Corbyn's brother, for instance, isn't a man <laughs> of the far right. No, look, the, what's what's happening politically? Let's let's situate it in, in the in the political framework. Mm. Since the the rise of what we call right wing populism in the 1990s, political science has been pretty obsessed with trying to create definitions that tell us the difference between, for example, the UKIP of Nigel Farage and say patriotic alternative which is one of the small neo-nazi groups in britain mm. okay and you, you could say okay well right right-wing populism is peaceful it, it it despises the kind of democracy we have but it uses those democratic institutions so it stands in elections it sometimes wins office um it it mobilizes people for demonstrations and it's quite good at demonstrations but those demonstrations are peaceful um and by and large, you, know, you could say it's driven by prejudice. Fascism is violent. It wants to overthrow democracy. It, it is overtly uh, racist. Uh, and as we now know, also equally overtly, violently anti-women. And the interesting thing is it's not simple prejudice. Fascism is based on theory and always has been. Modern fascism has a very clear set of theories about the world. Okay, so those are the kind of, you know, those are the kind of... Um, Categories that I've been working with as a journalist, you know, you, you, you look at something like uh, Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement yes. National, which is she's going to probably become get into the last round of the French presidential election and be it'll be head to head her and Macron. Is she a fascist? No, she her father was, but she has moved that party into the, sp the space of right wing populism. What's the problem? 
is that a lot of the support of that party are now thinking in ways which conform to the clear and well-theorized thought architecture of fascism itself. So my argument in the book is, yes, erect clear definitions of what you know how to tell how to spot a fascist and an authoritarian conservative or a right-wing populist but but reality is moving as we create those decisions and th uh, those definitions and the definitions no longer encapsulate what is happening as i argued the whole idea for many people journalists included I, i've worked with over the last 30 years is look ukip the front national etc trump terrible you know distasteful but at least they channel what could be fascism into a into a kind of dead end, an electoral dead end. They act as a kind of firewall. And what I say in the book is that, unfortunately, the firewall is on fire. Mm. They're no longer acting as a firewall. They're acting as an accelerator. And this is why, why you can't measure the fascist threat from how big is patriotic alternative or how big are the proud boys, how many t thousand you know, sad sort of violent men in America are signed up to that organization. You have to measure it from the social media footprint. Tommy Robinson, for example, yes, uh, can't today summon more than a hundred people, or maybe maybe sometimes a thousand people to the streets. He had a million followers on Facebook before that was shut down. It is quite incredible, that isn't it? And I do, I do want to come back to, to Tommy Robinson and, and people like him. So, so people like i mean there, there are some awful leaders aren't there on the on the world <laughs> stage right now as, as, as i guess there, there always have been but you know people like erdogan and bolsonaro orban are, are any of these people they're, they're not are they fascists are they are they populists are they just feeding fascism no again i think we have to you know we'd have to say that you know um the the, the number one thing to realize is their works in progress mm. um but we could say None of the people you'd mentioned I would categorize as fascist uh, because, you know, fascism is above all the, the one thing that 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 separates it or rather distinguishes it from right wing populism is its obsession with a catastrophic global yes. ethnic civil war. If you meet someone who is fantasizing about a, 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 a an ethno state across Eurasia from which Muslims are somehow disappeared, never quite clear how they're going to disappear, uh, but we can guess, um, then, then you've met a fascist. Um, now, so, so, so what is the role of these, of these right-wing populists? First of all, their role is to, to take power and stay in power through eviscerating democracy. That's the pattern they're following everywhere. Erdogan uh, was probably one of the first in Turkey. Um, Narendra Modi is doing the same thing in India. We've got Orban in Hungary. We've got Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Trump in America. And you, know, if you just think Brazil, America, Brazil, the United States and India are three of the biggest democracies in the world. And they've got, they had, or in the case of Trump, they had, you know, until January this year, those three in power were, were like a sort of engine for far right uh, advances everywhere else. Uh, why? Because... Even though they are not themselves fascists, they rely on mass movements, as I say, into which the thought architecture of fascism has been built. And so when you see it, you know, an American president inspire and incite an insurrection that is led by clear and organized fascists in the form of the Oath Keepers militia and the Proud Boys, who from the indictments, it is clear, conspired and you know, effected 
the the militarized assault on on, on the U.S. Congress. When you see that, you know you're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, yes, there's always been people like that, like Trump around, including Trump himself. He is, he is has great longevity, but they are now in power. They intend to stay in power by making the overhead cost of removing them through elections very high, and that's what that period from the December election, the, the November election, right through to January the sixth was about for Trump. It was about saying the cost of removing me is going to be high, and the people who will extract that cost are my good friends. You know, the the proud boys stand back and stand by. He told them, "Well, we know what that now meant." So I think we have to realize that that's the pattern everywhere. It's going to be the pattern in France. There are people that the FT reported this week, a great FT report on the people to the right of the Front National. They, it's now called the Rassemblement National. The people to the right of Marine Le Pen, you know, on TikTok, on Instagram, banging out their anti-Semitic, their anti-Islam, their, their you know, veiled calls for violence. Um, it, it, there's no symbiosis between these radical right-wing governing parties and leaders and, and a networked and fairly amorphous mass movement that is way to the right of them. The thought architecture of, of modern fascism is one of the, the most fascinating pieces of this, uh, of this article that you've written for us this week. And you, you've broken it down into five core beliefs. You, you've talked about the day X thing, the, the apocalyptic yeah. event, the, the, the race war. The idea, the first one I think that you mentioned, though, is white genocide and the idea of the great yeah. replacement, which yeah. is quite, I mean, it, this is discussed reasonably openly on in, in places like Fox News. People yeah. mentioned the, the great replacement. Just talk about what that so, is. And Okay. The, I mean, the first thing to remember is, is that none of this is new. A, a no. lot of the, a lot of the, core ideologies of fascism are just re retreads of the original Nazi ideology. But let's go through Great Replacement. Um, a French writer called Renard Camus wrote a book in 2012 uh, called The Great Replacement. And, and what he argues is actually what most new fascists, the 21st century fascists, have been arguing for many years. And that is this, that immigration by non-white people is a form of genocide against, quote unquote, the white race. Um, so because they will intermarry with us, I'm white, I identify as white, so they will intermarry with us and that will uh, dilute our gene pool, which is bad according to fascists because our gene pool is the highest and most noble and most worthy gene pool of, 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 of any, any other human uh, group. That's so that, that idea, of course, goes back to empire. It goes back to 19th century scientific racism, but that's its modern form. Okay, so once you establish in your mind that, that, that white genocide is taking place and that migrants are the enemy and that they're occupying our quote unquote country, what then follows? Point two is that the people helping them are feminists and liberal lawyers. And feminism is the equal target now to, 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 to racial minorities. And that's what the big difference is between today and the 30s. Yes, Hitler and Mussolini were horrible sexists and you know, uh, forcibly you know, forced women to have abortions or sterilized them, uh, kept them out of the workforce, gave them medals for having babies, but they weren't faced with you know, half of humanity being on a path towards re reproductive rights, education, equal, mm -hmm. equal legal rights. And so modern fascism, is really, really angry about feminism. So that's point two. Point three 
is lying behind the whole plot, you know, the migrants invading us and the feminists helping them is something called cultural Marxism. The culture, there are, I'm a Marxist. And I can tell you uh, as a Marxist, there are not many of us. Uh, so what the far right has had to do is invent some more. And the, the Marxists it's worried about are really liberals. It's people who, you know, are human rights lawyers. It's people who try to take down the statue of, of uh, Cecil Rhodes in, in, in Oriel College in Oxford, yes. or, or people who want to decolonize the curriculum. That's what they're really worried about. So that's part, point three. And the parallels here with Nazism are, are interesting. The Nazis saw the Jews as carriers, like with a disease, of Marxism. It's, and there's a very clear parallel from, to, to this in what the modern far right are doing. They're being, basically saying any social justice warrior, that's their other t- pejorative term for us, is a carrier of Marxism. Right, point four is what do they do? Metapolitics. They're, they are not planning to march on Rome. You know, they're not planning a seizure of power. They're quite happy with Trump, Bolsonaro, Erdogan mm-hmm. and the rest in power. But what they're doing is what they call metapolitics. They have a theory of spreading the myth spreading the ideology through acts of symbolic violence. And so you, what you do is you prepare. It's like if you prepare and if you spend your entire life in that preparation uh, for point five, which is what's the final point of what we've already mentioned, the idea of the global ethnic civil war, day X. So you, you spend your life preparing and teaching people about it. And what you're waiting for is a big bang. And what it's quite obvious now what they think the Big Bang's going to be. It's a mixture of a migration crisis, and we might get one after Afghanistan falls, and climate change. And they're very happy sitting, rubbing their hands, thinking, you know, if we can just get a, a movement that where people think in the way we think and deceive themselves in the way we deceive ourselves. Because, of course, everything I've just said is rubbish. You know, everything that they believe is rubbish. There is no white race. Feminism is not actively trying to destroy white uh, racial identity. All of, you know, because what they believe is absolutely crazy, if they can bring people to that way of thinking, that way of, of what I call performative self-deception, then everything becomes a conduit. Anti-vax can become a conduit. Anti-lockdown becomes a conduit. Uh, climate scepticism is a conduit. Um, just people feeling um, feeling distrustful of government, you know, uh, can become a conduit. And so, and, and of course, racism can become a conduit. And misogyny, and therefore gaming, because misogyny yes. is a big thing on online games. In online games, and that's a conduit as well. So this is why. I am worried about it. I am not worried about about the small groups yet. I'm worried about the large political following that this ideology has. What I'm trying to do in the book is, and in the article I've written for the, for, for the, the New European, is to just try and get people to, to understand what it is and see it when they, recognise it when they see it. And, I mean, obviously, 30 years ago, the people who believe this stuff were alone, you know, they were in their, in their bedrooms, in their, in their parents' basements. They were bare, barely daring to say this stuff in public. Um, now, and now we've got the Capitol and we've got movements like QAnon. We've got the Proud Boys who you've mentioned. We've got Tommy Robinson here who you've mentioned, who, you know, if he was less chaotic, would probably be very dangerous. Social media has clearly got a lot to do with this. And we're not, you know, we're not going to put that back in its box. How do we, how do we regulate our way out of this with, with, with social media, first of all? Well, I think 
it's a mixture of, of civil society pressure on those on those companies and monitoring the way their their machines work. In the book, there's an example of, of Brazil. Okay, so in the middle of the last decade, uh, teachers in Brazilian schools uh, who are teaching biology suddenly noticed out of nowhere kids standing up and saying, "You're teaching us Marxism here. I've had enough of it. I reject this." Okay, right. so okay, you've been te- biology teacher forever, teaching you know teaching evolution, natural selection, DNA exists, etc. Um, and suddenly a kid stands up and says that. Where's it coming from? It's YouTube. Because what happened is that YouTube's algorithm, what it certainly did at that time, remember, for the algorithms of these big corporations, there is no history, there's no documentation. Even when they put things right, they never tell us what was wrong or what they've done. Mm. So, But at the time, it's clear that YouTube algorithm was agglomerating all the discontents. So if you were worried about vaccines, if you were worried about uh, Marxism, or if you were worried about... Um, the active that Brazil has a big, it's not even an ethnic minority. I think it's a bare majority of this, of the population, you know, who are indigenous or or African in origin uh, through slavery um, and through the, being the indigenous people of Brazil. So if you if you hate them, suddenly there's a route to everything, to anti-vax, to QAnon, to 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 every popular discontent that leans in the right-wing direction. We know that YouTube, we're just throwing them all together into playlists for people. Right, now, we've got to, I think we've got to regulate these platforms better. And the, the first thing I want to do is to treat them as publishers. They yes. know, and we know, that if, you, that if you treat them as publishers, if I were to say on this podcast, some incite, you know, incitement to genocide, you would cut it out. Or if I slandered an entire ethnicity, you would cut it out because you're a publisher. Or if I issued a threat against a prominent journalist, you, you wouldn't allow me to do it. Unfortunately, Twitter is the greatest, you know, accelerator of, of, of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that, that we have ever invented. Um, and yet its owners simply stand back and allow it to do so, to do that. Um, its algorithms are weak in terms of defending against that. And one suspects they don't even try. So. If we regulated them as publishers, they'd have to take responsibility for the content and the problem will be half solved. I also have an argument that's not going to make me very popular with a lot of libertarian leftists, that while anonymity or pseudonymity, so you adopt, you adopt a fake identity, uh, is useful and, and legitimate for people who are fighting oppression and, or people, young gay people who want to, don't want to come out or, or a lot of people in domestic violence situations. What we've ended up doing is, is kind of treating anonymity as a, as a baseline. And so what, and I'm, and I'm against that, because what, where fascism flourishes, first of all, is that large numbers of online right-wing identities are completely fake. They're bots, they're machines, they're not human beings behind them, or there's one human being behind several thousand. The, the next problem is, if you can say anything you want anonymously, and you can meet lots of like-minded people, you are going to accelerate your own journey from prejudice to theoretical genocidal fascism very quickly. Because there's no checks and balances. There's no real world. There's no boss saying, hold on a minute, we don't want somebody working for us who thinks this because it might harm our business or they might mistreat one of our customers. If it's completely anonymous, which is where that's the far right online call themselves anon, um, you know, then... You can very quickly 
accelerate the path towards extreme radicalism. And what's the result? Result in Britain is that one in five convicted terrorists in British jails are fascists. You know, most people's idea of a, of a convicted terrorist is, is, is of, the, you know, of the kind of, you know, radical Islamist mm -hmm. jihadi, and they are four-fifths. But one-fifth, and it will rise because there's plenty of cases on the, on, the way, on the way through, although we shouldn't speak about them individually. You know, that almost inevitably, when you look through one of the case studies of someone who's, and, and some of these are, are under 16 people, so they can't even be named, people who've been radicalised online, the journey is very rapid. Uh, the, the journey of somebody like Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot dead yes. by the American police, trying to invade the capital. capital. She voted for Obama. And one of my arguments is that although we should find a balance between anonymity and non-anonymity, we shouldn't be celebrating anonymity because it's creating online radicalized communities that, that, that the normal interventions, like I want to reason with you or, or, you know, let's talk face to face. And can you really show your face in a civilized society while advocating, you know, mass death? All those defense lines break down. And so regulation of, of social media and publishing is one thing. But I'm also I'm, I'm also very in favour of what we call militant democracy, or in the book I call it militant democracy 2.0, because it was begun in the 30s. The countries that really defended themselves against fascism, the democracies, had anti-fascist laws. They had laws that, that prevented uh, people carrying guns. They had laws that prevented people inciting violence. They had laws that banned um, uniformed parades. And the, the country I'm the most worried about is the country whose constitution forbids all of that, which is the United States. Mm. Germany, in Canada, the proud boys are illegal as of a couple of months ago. You cannot be a proud boy. It is a criminal offense to be in that organization, to wear the, the regalia and to, to, to do what they do, which is violent intimidation. Cross the border to America and, and it's totally legal. And indeed in Portland, Oregon um, last weekend, when the proud boys invaded the city, the police just stayed off the street and allowed them to maraud through, you know, spraying people with mace, um, hitting them with paintballs, turning over cars. The police were nowhere, nowhere to be seen. And everything, you know, their existence is legal. I, I really want to have an argument with policymakers across the world. You, the, the purpose of democracy is not to facilitate fascism, but to stop it. And what about the idea of, of popular electoral fronts against fascism as well which is something else that you're you're advocating yeah look, we don't in a lot of countries in the world we're not going to need a rerun of what, what we historians call the popular front it's the popular front most people in britain have heard the word, po word popular front because of that oh, old tv brian. series well yeah yeah the the, 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 the that's one the life of brian and the other one there was a comedy series which, which had a guy who was a member of the tooting oh of course front. citizen Do you remember smith, yeah. citizen smith but the, the actual popular fronts in France and Spain were a, a tactic adopted by uh, the communists and the socialists to a stop fighting each other, which they've been doing for most of the interwar period, calling, I mean, basically calling each other extremists and fascists and, and even like you know, beating each other up. So they said, let's stop doing that. And then let's make an alliance with the liberals. And in the Spanish case, it was also with uh, nationalities like the Catalans and and the Basques and the Galicians in that in that era, who thought they were oppressed by the central government. So you 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 create a broad electoral alliance, and you keep out of power any alliance of the populist right and the fascist right. And now there are, there are places where this is going to be necessary in Europe and of course in America. I mean, we 
I think what the Democratic Party did in the last election was essentially a kind of basic popular front. So Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, pulled out of the primary race, allowed Biden to take the, the presidency, but extracted an agreement with him that they were going to fight in such a way that tried to, you know, that tried to mobilize the, the U.S. black uh, and other minority ethnic communities uh, rather than sort of step away with from them as a kind of, you know, let's not go there. So Biden won through a mobilization strategy, through, a, through, 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 through calling on radicalized communities in struggle to come out. Uh, and I think that the lessons of, of what happened in, in France and Spain in the 30s are that in addition to that, what you need is a mass movement, a mass movement that breaks down party lines that everybody can be part of. And you need a cultural movement because this is the, you know, the amazing thing that the French liberals, socialists and communists pulled off in 1936 was not just to form a government, which then gave huge uh, radical reforms to working people, but to, to create a cultural movement so that in every bar, in every workplace, you know, everywhere people were reading glossy magazines or trash novels, that every little bit of popular culture was steeped in the culture of anti-fascism by 1936-1937. And I think that that's really what I'm talking about. I'm talking, of course, I would like to see in France, the left and the centre agree to fight Marine Le Pen next year. I would like to see in Britain, you know, if we're going to sort climate change out and, you know, do something about the horrific um, and destructive impacts of that Brexit is now having, we're going to need to keep the Tories out of power for 20 years and allow them to come back to some form of Tory liberalism somehow. I don't know how. But to do that, we're going to need a progressive alliance. And I'm on the left of the Labour Party, but I'm writing this book has convinced me more than ever that the idea of a, an electoral agreement or non-aggression pact between Labour, the Greens, the SNP, Plyde and the Lib Dems is, 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 is axiomatic for the next election. It's simply got to come, hasn't it? Paul, we, we are way over time. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I could I could listen to this and contribute to it all day. There is so much more of it to be found in in, in How to Stop Fascism by Paul Mason. Uh, uh, you can uh, read Paul's uh, piece in this week's issue of the New European. I, I've got to ask you are, you, are you hopeful about the way this turns out, Paul? We've got the most educated generation ever. Even among the Afghans, you know, I've been, I've been dealing with Afghan refugees coming out of Af Afghanistan in the last two weeks. We, we're dealing with people with, you know, MAs in social theory. So, you know, that's what makes me hopeful that, mm. that throughout the world, throughout, in, you know, in China, in India, in, in, in Middle East, in Brazil, we're dealing with this incredibly educated set of people who, by and large, do have liberal, indeed radically liberal and uh, social justice orientated politics. I do not believe they will allow themselves to be defeated, but they do need to wake up to the to the challenge. If we, you know, the old World Cup, the Jules Rimet trophy, if you won it twice, you kept it. I think if we can defeat fascism twice in the space of a century, we could keep democracy. Well, that's a great thought to uh, <laughs> that's a great thought to end on. What a pleasure it's been uh, to talk to Paul Mason to read his piece. Uh, you can read it in the new edition of the New European. To uh, read more from the New European, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk/slash/subscribe. My thanks again to Paul Mason, and finally, it's the Hall of Shame, our home for. 
bad politicians, Brexiteers, hoist by their own petard, things that annoy me generally. One of the things that annoys me generally is John Redwood. He's in the Hall of Shame. He's got a solution to the lorry driver shortage we spoke about earlier. He has written, business can uh, solve the driver shortage uh, by raising wages and improving working conditions. Just recruit and train some more. Well done, John uh, Redwood, therefore, resisting the temptation to add simples uh, at the end of that message. Simples being what John Redwood is. There's so much to unpack in his statement, isn't there? Business can solve the driver shortage by raising wages and improving working conditions, just recruit and train some more uh, drivers. You know, we learn that in the eyes of Brexiteers, Brexit can't be blamed, even partly blamed for anything. So in this case, the lorry driver shortage isn't partly the fault of the Brexit that John Redwood advocated and said would have no bad side effects. It's actually the fault of the greedy lorry driving industry for adhering to all the principles that conservatives like John Redwood have been advocating for years. In short, the Thatcherite conservative John Redwood is so keen for Brexit to succeed that he's prepared to abandon Thatcherism and conservatism to do it. It's incredible stuff. Dominic Raab's back in the Hall of Shame. I have got an apology for you. On this podcast, last time I said the most stupid thing Dominic Raab would ever say was what he said when he said, I want to be clear to all those service people who lost their lives that it was not in vain. But that's now been surpassed by him saying this about his holiday while Kabul fell. The stuff about me paddleboarding is nonsense. The sea was actually closed. Blimey, I'm going to a festival after we finish recording this. What if the countryside's closed? And then in late September, I'm going on a foreign holiday. What what if the sky is closed? It's all too much to ponder. I'm going to have to relax by saying, Alack, egad, harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. The magical time in this podcast when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express, which is ridiculous. Anne Widdicombe writes this week, do you remember when all you had to do was roll up at a surgery to be guaranteed to see your GP? When if you wanted the doctor to call that day, you called the surgery in the morning when your doctor's home number was in the book. I do not begrudge GPs their pay, but I wouldn't mind getting some old fashioned service in return. Amazing stuff, isn't it? How are we going to solve this crisis in our health service, which may or may not have been caused by the party that Anne Widdicombe served for many years? What about hiring people who, while they've got no medical training whatsoever, are able to just look at someone on television and diagnose what's wrong with them? Because on the Daily Express website at the moment, there is this headline. Is the leader of the Western world, Joe Biden, senile? The evidence says yes, writes Anne Widdicombe. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week are Britain's new trade envoys. There are 10 of them, all white, eight male. One of them is Brexiteer Kate Howey, who's the new uh, trade envoy to Ghana, a a Burke in Burkina Faso there. And another is the Brexiteer trade expert, Sir Ian Botham, who said on joining the Lords, I will be at Westminster when they're debating something I know about, like sport or the countryside. There's not much point if it's a trade deal with Japan. But the real headline grabber for me is the appointment of Dumfriesshire, Clydesdale and Tweedale MP David Mundell as Britain's trade envoy to New Zealand. The former Scottish secretary said he was delighted to accept the role, but are his constituents going to be delighted? Because he's now in the unique position of helping New Zealand lamb, uh, farmers flood the UK with cheap New Zealand lamb, while also representing a constituency which has got lots of sheep farms on it. His majority at the last election was 3,781. 
it's beginning to look as vulnerable as the businesses of those farmers who voted for him. As the lambs might say, balmy. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guest, Paul Mason. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks too to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are released every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.